Last week, we started looking at the first recorded teaching uh, that Luke gives us of Jesus. And Jesus started this teaching telling uh, those who are blessed, which are basically those who uh, come to him and recognize their need for him. And, And then he also shared with us those who aren't blessed, which is basically those who don't come to him and don't recognize their need for him. And and then Jesus goes on to give us a very challenging command, a command to love our enemies. And he shares several practical ways we can do that by doing good to them, by blessing them, by praying for them, by giving to them, by not retaliating to them. And the one that so many are familiar with, the golden rule to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And then Jesus finishes his command to love our enemies by giving us the true test of love. Jesus says, you know, if you only love people who love you back, or you only do good to people who do good back to you, then what good is that? Even sinners do that. The real test of love is, are you willing to love the people who don't love you back? Are you willing to do good to the people who don't do good back to you? Actually, even one step further, to those who hate you, to those who do negative things to you, are you willing to demonstrate love to them? That's the kind of love that Jesus has called us to. And we noted that, you know what? In and of ourselves, we're not capable of that. In and of ourselves, we don't have that kind of love. We're not going to do that. That's why we need to rely upon God, rely upon His love, His strength, to do everything that Jesus shares in this sermon. So that's where we left off last week in Luke. And this morning, we're going to pick up continuing this teaching that Jesus gives there, starting in verse 37 of chapter 6 of Luke. And it says this, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Jesus starts off saying, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Now, this word judge is a Greek word translated in English judge. It means to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong, to act the part of a judge over someone else, to pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. So when you're judging someone, you're examining whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong. You're you're looking and examining their life, and you're pronouncing your opinion concerning what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong. That's what judges in our legal system do. They hear the case of the defendant. They look at all the facts. They recognize what they've been accused of. And then with all the facts, they pronounce a judgment as to whether or not this person's guilty of what they've been accused of. Now, the statement of Jesus, judge not and you shall not be judged, is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. I find interesting in this teaching of Jesus, we have two of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Last week, we looked at one of them, which was the golden rule. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. That's something that we hear so often quoted. And that one's usually quoted in context. This one, however, judge not and you shall not be judged, is also a very commonly quoted passage of Scripture, but unfortunately, it's quoted oftentimes out of context. Oftentimes, when people quote a verse in the Bible, they don't quote the verses before and after it. Actually, many times, they don't even know what the verses before and after it say. They've just heard that verse quoted, and they're just kind of repeating that. Uh, And because of that, they take this verse, judge not, and you shall not be judged, and they kind of come up with what they feel is the meaning of that because they don't really know the meaning because they haven't studied the context around what Jesus is teaching. And so this morning, we're going to discover that context, and we're going to see that 
The way in this is, which this is quoted so often is actually not the way that Jesus meant it to be used. You see, judge not and you shall not be judged is usually quoted by someone who has just been told what they've done is wrong. For example, you might have someone who comes up to someone else and says, you know what, screaming and cussing at that person really wasn't the way to deal with that situation. That was wrong. And they turn around and say, judge not and you shall not be judged, ultimately saying, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me that the way in which I dealt with that person is wrong? Or you might come up to someone and say, you know what, you might want to be real careful because that teaching that you're listening to or that person that you're following, you know, what they're teaching is not biblical. It doesn't go with the Bible. And they turn around to you and they use that verse again. Judge not, lest you should be judged. Who are you to tell me that the person that I'm following or the teaching that I'm listening to is not right? You see, many people who quote this verse seem to think that Jesus is commanding a universal acceptance of any lifestyle or any teaching. No matter what I do, no matter what I believe, you do not have the right to tell me that it's wrong. Because Jesus says, judge not and you shall not be judged. So basically, these people are concluding that we must accept any lifestyle that people are living and any teaching or belief system that people are following, because if we don't, then we would be judging them. But that is not what Jesus is telling us here. And if people would study the verses that follow this in the context, they would recognize that's clearly not what he's saying. You see, as Christians, we're called to unconditionally love others regardless of what they do and regardless of what they believe. That's one of the things we looked at at the beginning of this teaching. Love your enemies unconditionally. So we are to love everyone regardless of what they believe and regardless of how they live their life. But we are not called to unconditionally approve of what people do, how they live, what they believe. And there's a big difference between unconditionally loving someone for what they do and believe and unconditionally approving of what people do and believe. When Jesus says, judge not and you shall not be judged, he is not saying we must approve of everything that people do and believe and then we're not allowed to tell them that what they do or what they believe is wrong. And I think this is very important to understand, especially in our culture today, because in our culture today, people desperately do not want to be told that what they do is wrong or what they believe is wrong. One of the most popular words that we have in our culture today is the word tolerance. And when people use that word tolerance, they're ultimately saying, you know what, we need to be tolerant of everyone's lifestyle. We need to be tolerant of how everyone lives. We need to be tolerant of how everyone believes. And ultimately saying, you have no right to tell someone else the way in which they live is wrong. You have no right to tell someone else the way in which they believe is wrong. And that's kind of the way in which our culture is, is we just need to be tolerant of everything, just accept everything. But that is not what Jesus is telling us to do here when he says, do not judge or you'll be judged. And that's kind of the verse that even the world kind of throws back at us with this whole tolerance mindset is, hey, you better not judge me. You better not tell me what I'm doing is wrong. You see, the reality is ultimately we're not the ones claiming that what they do is wrong and what they believe is wrong. God is. As Christians, all we're doing is taking people back to what God says. God is saying this lifestyle is wrong. God is saying this belief system is wrong. We're just telling you what the Bible says. And actually... He is the ultimate judge. 
He's the one who you're going to stand before and we love you enough to tell you that, you know what? He says what you're doing is wrong and there is a consequence and he will judge that. And so we want you to know what you're doing is wrong. We want you to recognize this is sinful in the eyes of God. We want you to understand there's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. And so if you have a different belief system and how you get saved, it's wrong. And we want to tell you because we love you enough to let you know the truth and how to get a right relationship with God. Now, because this verse has been misused and misunderstood, a lot of people look at judging as a bad thing, as a sinful thing. You, know, you usually heard that you know, when that word judging is used, it's almost always in a negative connotation of, you know, oh, judging is so bad. But judging someone in and of itself is not a bad thing. To judge is something that actually can be very good. I'm glad in our country we have judges. I'm glad that we have a legal system with judges. I'm glad that you know, there are judges who are there who can pronounce someone who's guilty or innocent of crimes. And, and we have that system where there's someone there who's determining those things, who are pronouncing their opinion on those things. It keeps us from having a bit of chaos here. So, so judging definitely can be good. But the thing that we need to recognize is it also can be very bad. So judging in and of itself isn't bad or sinful. It only becomes bad or sinful when we judge in the wrong way. When that judgment leads to pride, when it leads to arrogance, when it leads to us looking down on people, when it leads to judging with the wrong heart and judging with the wrong attitude and judging in a sinful and wrong way. So we need, we need to realize that you, you can judge someone. You can pronounce your opinion on what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong. You can do that in the right way. And you can also do that in the wrong way. And so as Jesus is dealing with this here, he's not saying don't judge, as in judging is bad. He's saying don't judge in a wrong way. And he's also going to share with us, actually, there's a proper way to judge. And so that's really what this section's all about, of Jesus saying, you know what? There's a proper way to judge people, and there's a wrong way to judge people. And he's wanting to help us understand, don't do it the wrong way. Instead, do it the right way. And so when you hear this term judging, uh, it's not something that God is saying you shouldn't do. He's saying you shouldn't do it the wrong way. Uh, and so let's just make that clear because the Bible definitely tells us as Christians there are things we need to judge. And I just want to look at a few verses that reveal that because I think so many people have heard this passage and think, oh, the, God does not ever want us to judge. Well, actually, that's not true. The Bible actually specifically tells us to judge certain things. Here's one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, ultimately, the context of what Paul is talking about here is not taking another believer to court. And he's saying, isn't there someone within the church and the leadership of the church that's wise enough that can judge your matter, that can judge the issue that you guys have in between each other? He says, I say this to your shame that there's not someone in your church with the wisdom to do this. But Paul's ultimately saying, you know what? You should be taking your matters to the leadership of the church and allowing them to judge, to judge what's going on between you guys. So Paul's actually telling us, hey, God wants... Leaders in the church to judge these issues. Here's a command to actually judge things that are going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, it says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. 
Now, here Paul is speaking about order in the church, especially concerning spiritual gifts. And he's saying, you know what? If someone is claiming that they have a prophetic word from God, and they say, you know what? I'm going to share that with you as a church. Paul says, you know what? One or two, or two or three, sorry. And then, what does he say? Let the rest of the congregation judge. Well, what is it they're judging? They're judging this word that someone's saying, I have this prophetic word from God for you. Well, the congregation is going to listen to what they have to say, and they're going to judge based on, does this contradict the Bible, or does this coincide with the Bible? You know, we're going to judge this. We're called by God to judge whether or not this word is truly from God. You know, there's a very similar group of people that Paul came in contact with called the Bereans, and we're told that they tested the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching them was biblical or not. The great apostle Paul, the great missionary, he comes and he starts teaching, and these people say, we're not just going to take your word for it, Paul, because you say it. We're going to go and search the scriptures to make sure what you say coincides with God's word. And Paul praises them for that. But ultimately, they were judging Paul's words to make sure Paul's words coincided with the word of God. Now, there's many instances in Scripture that deal with the fact that we should judge. Jesus is going to give us one specific thing as we continue with this teaching. But I just wanted to bring that up because I think too often when we hear this word judge, we think, oh, we should never do that, when the reality is there are instances and there are times as believers that we're supposed to judge. The key is, how are we doing it? Are we doing it in the right way that God tells us to do? Or are we doing it in a wrong way, which Jesus is going to deal with here? Another thing I want us to note is our judgments should only be based on what the Bible says, not on our opinions. So often as a pastor, I see people judging, and it's based on their opinion. And I was like, well, wait a second, why do you have an issue with that? Well, because of this, this, and this. Well, where is that in the Bible? Where is that wrong in the Bible? That should be the where we say, okay, this is wrong because the Bible says it. And that's why I'm going to declare it. Kind of like when the world says, oh, we're going to accept this, this, and this. We say as a church, no, we're not, because the Bible says it's wrong. And we're going to hold to what the Bible says. And so when you're judging, that should be the source of truth. We should always come back to the Bible. If you're judging someone based on something that the Bible has nothing to say about, then that's not something you should be doing. So Jesus is not condemning judging in general. He's condemning a certain kind of sinful judging. And he's going to reveal what that sinful judging is and how we should properly judge. Notice what he says in verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Here Jesus gives us a great principle when it comes to judging others. He says, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, these two sermons are very similar. Jesus makes very clear that he's referring to how we judge. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 2 on the Sermon on the Mount, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus is telling us we're going to receive the same kind of judgment that we give to others. So the principle that Jesus is giving here is judge other people in the way that you would like to be judged. It's the same principle that he gave us with loving others. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Love other people in the way that you want to be loved. Now he's saying judge people in the way that you would like them to judge you. Jesus has given us a very important principle for how we should judge. And this is something that if we hold to, it'll be so good that we would take and show judgment on others in the same way that we would like them to show judgment to us. Now, notice in this verse, Jesus does not permit or prohibit, sorry, judgment of others. 
He only requires that our judgment be fair, that we only judge others by the same standard that we would also like to be judged. Now, to make this point more clear, Jesus gives us an illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 39 says this, And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Blether, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrites! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus shares a parable here to try to help make his points of the wrong way that we approach judging others. Jesus starts off by saying, can the blind lead the blind? If there's a blind person and you get another blind person to lead him, is that a good thing? Can he do that? No, both of them are going to fall into the ditch because they're both blind. They both don't know where they're going, so one cannot lead the other. Now, what Jesus is revealing through this illustration is that oftentimes in our judgments of others, we're like a blind person trying to lead another blind person. We're trying to point out the faults and sins in someone else's life when we're not willing to deal with the faults and sins in our own life. So we're like that blind person trying to guide another blind person. We're blinded by our own sins and we're trying to point out theirs. What that person needs is not another blind person. They need someone who can see. And he talks about this teacher who can train them and correct them and help them to grow. And then he goes on to say what's probably one of the most familiar uh, parables that Jesus uses. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that's in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. This is a great illustration here that Jesus uses, telling us that we shouldn't judge others by trying to remove a speck in their eye when we have a plank in our own. And it's very you know, picturesque of you know, someone coming and saying, hey, you know, hey let, let me get that little speck out of your eye when they have this huge plank that's blinding them. You know, and imagine, I, I like this picture that I found, and I like that it's kind of the religious person because that's so often the people who do this. But, hey, let, let me get that speck, even though I have this huge plank that's blinding me, that there's no way I can actually do that. And, and that's kind of how we are. We're so hypocritical in doing that. You know, oftentimes our judgment in regard to others is wrong because we judge others by one standard and we judge ourselves by a very different standard. And the reality is the standard that we judge ourselves with is much more lenient and much easier than the standard that we judge other people by. You see, oftentimes we look and judge the speck of a problem that other people have, but we don't judge and deal with the huge problems in our own life. And then Jesus says, We become hypocrites. We're pointing out tiny sins in other people, telling them, hey, you need to deal with this little sin in your life, but I have this huge sin that I'm not willing to deal with in my own life. I have this huge plank that I'm not willing to deal with and remove. That kind of judging is not following the principle that Jesus gave of judging others in the same way that you would like to be judged. Judging others with the same standard that you judge yourself with. You know, I think sins are oftentimes like the headlights of a car. Those of others seem much more glaring than your own. We look at other people's sins and we think, oh, how horrible, how bad. And then we we look at the same sins in our life. Oh, they're not too bad. That's not so hard. That's not so bad. That's not so you know, evil. That's not so sinful. You know, we, just, we see things very different oftentimes and it causes us to judge in a different way. Of, oh, how dare you do that? 
oh, well, I do that, and you know, it's okay that I do it, but how dare you do those things? I think a good example of this kind of hypocritical judging is in the life of David. David has just committed adultery, and then he commits murder. And the prophet Nathan is sent by God to share something with David. And, and Nathan shares this scenario with David. And I want you to know David's hypocritical response. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock but from, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wafering man for had, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now notice David's response to this story. Verse 5, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now understand this. David's guilty of murder, he's guilty of adultery, and according to the law, the punishment of both of those sins is death. And Nathan now shares this scenario of a rich man who has all these herds of flock, and a poor man who has only one lamb, and the rich man has a visitor, and instead of taking one of his lambs and cooking it for this visitor, he says, you know what, I'm going to take that guy who only has one lamb, and I took it from him, and I cooked it. Now, the punishment for this rich man would be to take and give this man now two lambs, the one he took and then another one. That was the punishment according to the law. But notice David's response. Kill that guy. How dare he do that? Now, it's interesting. David has committed two things that actually are guilty of death. This man has committed something that's not guilty of death in any way, shape, or form. But David wants to judge this man's sin, this speck, in comparison to his plank, and says, let's kill him. But yet David doesn't want to take that punishment himself. He deserves death. This man doesn't. And notice Nathan's response. David, you're the man. You're the rich king who took that one woman from another man and then ultimately had him killed. David was judging others in a very hypocritical way. He judges the speck of a sin, but won't judge the plank of a sin in his own life. So when Jesus says, when judging someone, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, the person that we need to be most concerned about is us. I get so concerned when I see people in the church and they feel like, you know, I have the gift of judging. It's like, well, actually, that's not a gift at all. Uh, and it's more of a curse for the rest of us. But, you know, they never really look and judge their own life. It's always, I want to point out the problems in everyone else. I want to be the Holy Spirit in everyone else's life. And I have never found someone who does that, that first and foremost is like, but I always look to make sure I'm judging myself, make sure I'm looking at my own life, make sure that my life is right with God. That's the person, first and foremost, we should be concerned about. Because when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, you're not responsible for anyone else. You're responsible for you. You want to make sure, I dealt with my issues, Lord. I dealt with my sin. I judged my life. And sadly, too often, we're more concerned about dealing with other people's and pointing other people's sins out and judging them than we are about judging ourselves. And another thing to note is, once again, Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to help remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying, you know, it's not a bad thing to remove the speck, but first remove the plank from your own eye. First deal with your issues before you try to come and deal with other people's issues. So once again, he's not condemning judging. And normally when people use this parable, they say, see, you should never judge someone's speck. That's not what Jesus is actually saying. He's, no, first deal with yourself before you try and judge anyone else. When we judge others, we make sure we do it in a fair and loving way. Judge them with the same standard, with the same motivation, with the same goal that you would want to be judged with. And really, ultimately, that goal should be to help that person. That goal should be motivated by love for that person, that you want to see them repent, you want to see them restored, you want to see them grow in their relationship with God. Unfortunately, I think there are a lot of Christians who just like to point out sins, but they don't really like to help the person in sin. They don't really have a love for that person in sin. They just want to tell everybody else about the sin. They're mainly gossips. They love to say, oh, look at what's going on here. And did you hear about so-and-so and what they've been doing? And hey, did you see what that person's doing over there? And, and they just want to point it out so everyone can see the sin in other people's lives around them. And maybe it makes them feel better or more spiritual. But the problem is that's an ungodly way of approaching this. Ultimately, we need to approach people and say, you know what, I am dealing with this. I'm coming to you with this because I love you. I want to help you. I want to see you restored. I want to see you repent. I want to see you deal with this sin. That's the reason I'm bringing it to you. I remember when I was in Bible college, something I really struggled with was pride. Uh, And, you know, I had a guy come up to me. uh, Actually, two people, you know, kind of dealt with this. But the first one was a student. um, And kind of interestingly enough, he probably struggled with more pride than me. But he loved to point out people's sins. He loved to go around and kind of, you know, tell everyone what they were doing wrong. And uh, he never talked to me. He was a couple semesters ahead of me. You know, we never, ever had a conversation. He didn't know me. You know, he never demonstrated love to me. But he heard me make a comment Uh, was a prideful comment. Uh, And so he kind of just started telling people, hey, you know, Matthew's so prideful and this and that. And he never came to me about it. He never wanted me to say, you know, hey, you need to deal with this. It was just, let me tell everybody else what's going on. Now, that response of his, that his judgment towards me, it didn't cause me to deal with my pride. It didn't cause me, you know, to do anything except to get angry with him that he would just kind of spread that around and not come to me personally. But about a month and a half after that, one of the teachers that I really liked, that invested a lot in me, you know, that, you know, was spending time with me, he came to me privately and said, you know what, Matthew, I see some pride in your life. And if you don't deal with it, it's really going to cause you problems. Personally, it's going to cause you problems if you want to get into ministry. uh, And you need to sort that out. You need to deal with that now. Uh, And I appreciated him because, one, I knew he cared about me. I knew he loved me. It wasn't something that he was telling a bunch of people. He came to me personally and said, hey, I want to help you with this. I want to see you restored. I want to see you repent. I want to see you get past this issue of sin in your life. And I responded to that very well. That was something that I received and recognized. And at that point in time, I really said, Lord, I want to start dealing with these pride issues that I have. I want to repent and grow. But see, two different approaches. One, a very ungodly approach. One, a very godly approach. But I want you also to recognize when you come to people like that, the reality is if you come in a very ungodly way, most people never respond by repenting, by getting right, by changing when you do that. And so it's like, what's the point? Truly, if you want to help them, truly, if you love them, then approach it in the right way, and you'll actually start seeing people who change because of it. We should only point out someone's sin with the purpose of helping them see their sin, helping them overcome their sin, helping them repent of it, because we ultimately love them. 
When you judge without love for them, without wanting to see repentance and reconciliation and restoration, ultimately you're in sin as you approach them, judging them that way. So as Christians, there are ways that we should not judge, and there are ways that we should judge. And now Jesus is going to tell us of a specific thing that we need to be judging and looking out for when we see this. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here Jesus gives us another illustration to make his point. He gives an illustration of trees and the fruit that they produce. He tells us, you know, every tree is known by their fruit. For men don't gather figs from thorns, and they don't gather grapes from a bramble bush. Jesus is using the illustration that the fruit we get, like grapes and figs, come from a grapevine or a fig tree, not some different type of vine or different type of frig or tree. You won't get grapes from thorn bushes. You won't get figs from thistles. Just like vines of trees only produce the fruit they're supposed to, good trees does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. You see, Jesus wants us to understand the fruit reveals the tree. The fruit that comes out reveals what kind of tree it is. If the fruit's good, the tree's good, because a good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. So if the fruit's bad, the tree's bad, because the fruit ultimately reveals the the tree. Now, Jesus gives this illustration with trees and fruit to show us the same thing is true with people. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. Evil man, out of the evil treasures of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the reality is, what's in your heart is going to come out in what you say. It's there. It's going to eventually come out. People are going to see it. It's going to demonstrate what you are, what you're like. You can't really hide it. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're given a few more details to help us see what Jesus is focusing on with this illustration. Verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Ultimately, what Jesus is focusing on are these individuals that come into the church who are false prophets who are there to try to deceive, to destroy. When the Bible speaks of Christians, it usually refers to them as sheep. And he says, they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. I found this picture. I thought it was kind of cool because I think it's kind of depicting these guys See, inwardly there's this ravenous wool, but outwardly they put on the sheep clothing because they want to be perceived as these great Christian people, but yet the reality is they're false teachers. They're seeking to destroy us. They're seeking to lead us away from what the Bible teaches. But, you know, these false teachers aren't coming in the church saying, hey, here's a sign, I'm a false teacher. You know, they're very deceptive. They know the lingo. They know the things that make you, you know, think, oh, yeah, this is a good person. You know, I want to follow their teaching. We have to ultimately look at their fruit to determine whether or not they're truly a teacher of God's word or a false teacher. Look at their actions. Look at their words. Look at their lifestyle. Because ultimately, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're going to come out and they're going to say things that are unbiblical if they're false teachers. So the way that you and I can know if someone's a false prophet is by examining 
their fruits because their fruits will reveal what they really are. So God does want us to judge certain things. He says, you know what, you can look at someone's fruits, especially those who are in a position like I am of saying, hey, I am teacher of God's word. Well, look at the fruit of my life. Look at what I say. Does it coincide with the word of God? If not, then you shouldn't be listening. That's the reality of what Jesus is saying. There are people who are going, who are seeking to undermine the truth of the Bible, to deceive people. But, you know, I think it's important to recognize we can judge the outward fruits, the actions, the words. We can recognize that. But one thing that we're not allowed to judge, only God sees this, is the motive of the heart. And I bring that up because I see too many people who are Christians who seek to judge others' motives. We don't know people's motives. Only God knows the motives of the heart. And I see too often, I was like, well, what is it that they actually did that was a problem? Well, it wasn't what they did. It was their motive behind it. Well, how do you know what their motive was? You know, and we read into it. And we're, you know, I mean, I see that so often in counseling. Of That's one of these big issues of we're bringing this judgment and we're assuming, well, they must have been thinking this or they, they must have had this motive. And, hey, that's not ours to judge. We can only judge the actions and the words that are clearly there. We can't judge the motives. That's ultimately up to God. He's the one who knows the motives, and we don't. And it brings lots of problems when we start to assume, well, they must have been feeling this or must have been thinking this or must have been doing this. And then we start judging based upon those things, and that judgment becomes very problematic and oftentimes very sinful. When it comes to judging other people's sin, I think it's important to remember God's heart when it comes to sin. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But notice verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God's heart is to save people from their sin, not to condemn them. Sadly, I think so often as Christians, we're like, we want to condemn you right now. It's like our heart is a heart of condemnation and judgment when really the heart of God is, I want to save them. Point that sin out so that they'll deal with it, so that they'll get reconciled with me, so that they'll repent of it. It's one of, of salvation, not one of condemnation. And too often, that's our mindset. We come with this, I want to destroy and punish and I want to bring this judgment upon you. But that's not the heart of God. So Jesus has given us some big commands in this sermon, how to love your enemy, how to judge in the proper way. And now he's going to finish with a very important principle, important principle not just for this sermon, but for anything that you take from the Word of God. Verse 46 says this, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Jesus here is going to conclude his teaching with the importance of not just hearing what he says, but actually doing what he says. And he starts by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, that might not make sense to some of you, but let me help you understand something, because we use this term Lord, this title Lord, often. You listen to people pray, oh, Lord Jesus, Lord, will you do this, Lord? We throw it out there all the time, because it's just one of those words that we use in the church, but I find that a lot of people actually don't have a clue of what this title means, what this word means. We just throw it out there, Lord this, Lord that. You know what this word means? The word means one who has control over a person, him to whom a person belongs, the master. When you're saying Lord, ultimately what that title is, is master. And I want you to think about that because when the master tells a slave to do something, the slave better do it. Because the master owns that slave. The master is in control of that slave. And so that's why Jesus says, why do you say Lord, Lord, master, master to me and not do what I say? 
Why do you claim I'm the master of your life and you're disobedient to what I tell you to do? Those two don't go hand in hand. If I'm truly your master, then you should listen and do what I tell you to do. See, the problem is we like to use the term Lord. Maybe we didn't actually recognize it means master, but you know, we might want to say God's the master of my life, but is that really true? Have I really placed him in that position of you are the master, you are the one that I will follow. What you tell me to do, I will be obedient to. Because I think for many of us, it's like, well, I'd like to call God the master of my life, but in all reality, I want to be the master of my life. I want to be the one who tells me what to do. I want to be the one who I'm obedient to. Or maybe there's some areas where God's the master of my life, but he's not the master of all my life. He's only the master of a little bit or a portion of it. And this is a very important question, and this is how Jesus starts this. You know, why do you call me master? If you're not willing to actually put into practice and do what I tell you to. Because then I'm really not your master. Because if I truly was your master, then you do what I'd say. I think it's important to realize 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, in the Bible, we have this term redeemed. It's a very important term. It means to buy back. The reality is God has bought you back, bought me back. Everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he has bought us back from that lifestyle, that slavery to sin that was sending us to hell. And the price to buy us back was Jesus's life. He had to give his life. That was what he had to pay to buy us, to purchase us back. And these verses are telling us, you know what? You are no longer your own. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God's saying, I now own you. I purchased you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're no longer your own. And what is the response to someone no longer being their own? Well, now you should glorify God in your body and in your spirit. The reality is I should recognize I'm no longer my own. I have been bought with the most precious price of all, Jesus' blood. He gave his life to buy me. And now I am the slave and God is the master. He bought me, he owns me, and I should live my life with that recognition and saying, because you're the master, I should do what you tell me to. I should obey. I should listen and put into practice what you're saying. So Jesus starts off, why do you call me Lord, Lord, or Master, Master, and not do the things which I say? And now he's going to share a parable to explain the importance of not just hearing, but doing what he says. Verse 47, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream uh, beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did uh, did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, again, which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." In this parable, Jesus is making a point. He brings up two men. Two men who both build a house, but they both build the house on a different foundation. One builds a house on the rock. He has to dig down deep through that rock. It's a lot of work. It's hard. The other one says, forget that. Forget doing all that work. I'm just going to put my foundation, as we know in the Sermon on the Mount, it's spoken of as the sand. Really, no foundation at all. One has the rock. One has the sand. When the storms come, that one on the rock, man, it gets beaten, 
it gets hammered by that storm, but it doesn't go anywhere because the foundation is the rock. The foundation doesn't move, and therefore the house doesn't move. But the one that's on the sand, man, when the storms come, that thing gets wiped away. A few years ago, I took an outreach to help Hurricane Sandy victims up in New Jersey. And it was interesting, right on the coast, there was only one house left in this place. And this guy built this solid brick foundation that was probably about, maybe about three feet taller than me, so almost 10 feet tall. And he said, everyone just laughed at him and like, why did you put all this money into this huge solid rock foundation? What a waste. His was the only house that left was Sandy. All the other ones were washed. You could just see them totally destroyed. When that came, man, everyone else's foundation was nothing like the rock that he put his on. And it was kind of, we took a picture by it. I thought it was very good for this sermon. But, um, you know, this is something that we need to understand, what Jesus is saying, that, hey, just hearing the Word of God, just reading the Word of God, it's not good enough. You have to apply it. You have to do what it says. When you do what it says, you're like, Someone who actually has a foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And when the storms of life hit, they're not going to move you. They're not going to destroy you. But on the other side of the coin, when you're like that person who just hears or just reads the Bible, you take in the information, but you actually don't do it, you don't put it into practice, then you don't have any foundation. You're not doing what you're hearing and bringing in. And so when the storms of life come, you get destroyed. You know, I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor, but I would say I definitely grew up as a hearer, not a doer. I was almost in church every day of the week. I heard sermon after sermon after sermon, little Bible study here and there. I read the Bible, and, you know, I came to a point where I would go through storms. I would go through temptations. I would go through struggles, and oftentimes just fall on my face, and they would wipe me out, and I would think to myself, why is this happening? I go to church. I go to church all the time. I read the Bible, and it took me a while to figure out the problem isn't that I'm not hearing and taking things in because I was hearing and taking things all the, all the time. The problem was I'm not doing it. I'm not putting it into practice. Yeah, I got a, a whole mindful of all this wealth of knowledge of Scripture that I don't do anything with, and it's a waste for me because I'm not applying it to my life. And it was amazing to me that when I came to that recognition and started putting things into practice, started recognizing the main purpose of Bible study, the main purpose of coming here on Sunday and listening to a message is not just to get filled with a bunch of biblical knowledge, it's to take that knowledge and let it change your life, apply it to your life, become more like Christ. And that only happens when you put it into practice. And I was amazed that when I started doing that, the storms would come, the temptations would come, the trials would come, and there was a very different response because I was actually putting these truths that I knew in my head out into my life and it drastically changed my response and I was resisting temptation. I was going and overcoming the storms that I faced. So the challenge that Jesus gives us is that we need to not just listen when He says things, we need to also do what He says. We need to not only hear that we need to love our enemies, hear that we need to judge people in the right way. We need to actually put it into practice. Do it. Be a doer of the word, not just hearers only. Can the worship team come on up? You know, as I mentioned last week, and maybe for some of you, loving your enemies was harder. Maybe for some of you this morning, judging people in the right way is harder. But either way, the reality is, hey, you know what? I don't have love for my enemies, the way that God's commanding me to, and I don't have it in myself to judge people the right way. It's ultimately something I have to rely upon God's love, His strength, His wisdom, if I'm going to be able to do that. And the same is true for you. But you know, I think one of the best things that we can do, and something that I have made more of a pattern in my life, especially as I started realizing, I'm not applying what I'm learning. 
I'm not applying what I'm getting taught. I'm not applying what I'm reading. And one of the things I started doing, I was challenged to do, and it helped so much, is just start asking God through prayer, hey, Lord, I want to do this. I recognize I have this information in my head that doesn't actually trans out, you know, come out in my life. I'm not putting it into practice, and I want to change. I want these truths of the word to actually be something that I live out, and I want you to help me to do that. And so I just want to close this morning taking some time to do that, just taking some time together that we just ask the Lord, hey, there's so many things, even in this passage just that we looked at, that, hey, I want to do this. I know that there's a right way and a wrong way to judge people, Lord, and I want to make sure that I put into practice that right way. I know that you've told me that I need to love my enemies, and that's very difficult for me, but yet I want to do that. I want to put that into practice. I want to do these things. And as you're studying the Bible on your own, as you're listening to sermons, always coming back to this truth of, Lord, I want your help. I want you to help me put these things into practice. And so I just want to take some time this morning before we go and leave that we come before the Lord and we ask him, hey, help me to put into practice the truths of your word. And so if you'd like to pray, I encourage you to do that. I'll give some time for you guys to pray. I'll close this in prayer. But then we could disagree with one another and come to God and say, hey, Lord, we recognize this is not easy for us. We need your help to do this. We want to put into practice the truths, the commands, the things that you tell us to do. So let's just take some time. I'm going to have Ray open us in prayer. I'll close this in prayer. And if you want to pray, you can. You don't have to. Uh, but I just encourage you to do that. So let's just take some time to ask the Lord for his help to apply his word to our life.